Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing. That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles and the Big Apple in New York City, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg of thecaregiverspace.org. Coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on 21 global audio and video platforms, including iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and a whole <laughs> bunch more. And we're proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and one of the top six best podcasts by Caring.com, as well as number three podcast out of thousands of caregiver podcasts on Feedspot. And we have an exciting show planned for you today, don't we, Adrian? Yes, we do. Dr. Jenny Shea is professor and SEMS Foundation Endowed Chair in Cell Biology and Director of the UTSA Brain Health Consortium. She has a PhD in biology from John Hopkins University. She runs the Shea Laboratory, a, new, a neural stem cell biology laboratory that focuses on four major areas, epilepsy in a dish, 3D cerebral organoids, patient recruitment, and mechanisms of adult neurogenesis. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you very much, Dave. Happy to be here. Good. Sorry for all the technical difficulties that we were having to get get you on here, but I am in Hawaii, and uh, all bets are off when that happens. So I usually like to ask my guests, take a couple of minutes and tell me just who is Dr. Shea and why was she put on this earth? Thank you, Dave. <laughs> me, Jenny. I Jenny. am a stem cell biologist. I've always been fascinated with the brain. I've loved the brain ever since I can remember. I think it's the most important part of your body. It controls everything about what we do, why, what foods we like to eat, and who we are. And uh, even though it's so important in our lives, it's also the probably the most mysterious thing on this planet. And that's what I want mm. to work on. Well, I agree, and I, I, I totally agree with you about the brain being the most important one, because once you have your, uh, once you lose your mind or your memory or your ability to speak, my wife suffered a stroke uh, 23 years ago, and she's unable to speak because she has global aphasia, and so that's pretty rough. And then my mother had Alzheimer or dementia, rather, not much difference, I guess. But uh, she kind of lost her memory, and my mother-in-law, the same thing. And so I take this test every six months that I saw a free research project, um, and it tests me to make sure that I am, uh, you know, okay, and that I early uh, dementia and Alzheimer's detection. And so far, I'm right below the borderline, so 
nothing to worry about yet, but I don't want to be the last one to know if there's a problem. <laughs> I don't want my kids saying, we better take dad's keys away because I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, they ask very, very interesting questions, you know. And, um, many of them I know my mother could not answer, uh, like count backwards uh, from 100 and in increments of 7. I can still do that. <laughs> I'm talking as if I'm demented here. But some of these questions are, are hard even for normal people who are not uh, doing it. Most people can't count backwards from 100 in increments of 7. I only do it because I go uh, increments of 10 and then I'll add 3 and that's 7. And so uh, how did you first get involved? Uh, you said that you love the study of the brain. At an early age, you you uh, it was very astute and aware of yourself to realize that uh, this this thing on your head is a very important part of the body, and that you had a fascination with it. So explore some more of that, how that started. Yes. Yeah, so how old you were? Yeah. So my my path to studying the brain came in a very roundabout and windy way. Probably that's the. I can say most scientists start off being very curious about something, and, and I think many people fundamentally are, are curious about how things work. And I, I was most curious about uh, essentially uh, what makes a person, what makes human beings human. And in fact, uh, what I kind of the earliest things I learned about human biology was not in human beings, but in in something as uh, obscure as uh, as worms. <laughs> so I was early on in my, when I was a graduate student at Johns Hopkins, I was studying these little teeny tiny microscopic nematodes. Uh, that's another story we could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but it, uh, these little creatures revealed to me um, everything about genes. And, and, it, and I learned that this genetic information, that if we understand the secret to our genes, that then we can kind of build on that and then, and then maybe understand what it is to be human beings and also about brains. And, and, uh, and what fascinated me about the brain was that because I learned in that in a textbook that we, when we're born, unlike other uh, parts of our body, like the hair or the skin or even our blood, the brain uh, doesn't seem to uh, regenerate or, or grow after you're born. So you're, what I was, um, you know, it, it's like a puzzle, you know, why is something so important and what probably makes us human, why does it stop growing after a certain point? It seems that it's a very dangerous way. You know, you have you have everything you that's in your head, but then you have to just take care of it and make sure that it stays perfect, or or else uh, you might start you know losing your memory. And so, so that that just to me became such an important problem. And and the good news is is that there are still stem cells which are these baby cells, these cells in a, deep within our brain, hidden, but um, still contain the, this, this magical potential to regrow. And, and, and the connection is I wanted to study the genes and then the, the, these stem cells and put it all together in order to understand how the brain works. Wow. 
So there is hope. I mean, all of the money that the Alzheimer's Association has raised, and they have raised a lot of money, are they any closer to finding a cure for Alzheimer's or slowing it down? Uh, just like uh, the Cancer Society, you know, has made great strides in in uh, improving the lifespan of people who have cancer now. Early detection, I guess, is always the key. You're, you're absolutely right. So the Alzheimer's Association, and there's also increasing funds that Congress has recently appropriated to fund research in Alzheimer's and also in aging and dementia-related research. So that's all wonderful. The more funds we have for scientists to do basic research, we are one step closer to a cure. But I also want to take the opportunity to tell you about a new, uh, a new prize that UTSA, the University of Texas at San Antonio, which I work, is, uh, is doing to try to also get one step closer to a cure. Really? Well, tell us about that. Absolutely. So, so this is a very new uh, idea. Um, this, this How new is new? <laughs> <laughs> so the, like this week, this year, this decade. <laughs> it was launched. The it's a it's a it's a prize that was launched last month, and it's going to run for an entire year. So, mm -hmm. from January twenty twenty to. December 2020, and um, and it was we were very fortunate here at UTSA to uh, have the Texas businessman Dr. James Truchard. He gave a five million dollar donation. To, it's a gift to UTSA, and it establishes this Oscar Fisher Prize. And um, anybody can enter the prize. Uh, can submit an application. There's you don't have to be a scientist. And the prize is the largest of its kind. So the, it aims to bring together and engage the world's uh, best and most brilliant minds to look at the entire story of Alzheimer's um, and all the decades of wonderful research and to try to fill in this, these missing puzzle pieces in their explanation of the disease. So there's um, the the there's prize monies to for the winners that come up with the best explanation for Alzheimer's research and our the goal of this is to incentivize creative and original thinking about Alzheimer's disease because if we can understand and and have a good explanation then maybe we could start using that explanation to come up with a cure. Well, it's very interesting to use the profit motive to motivate great researchers who I'm sure are already passionate about their work and they, they you know, they want to save the world and they want to, they want to just make uh, their life and the lives of the world better and to just dangle a little carrot of five million dollars uh, I assume they get to use that money however they want. Um, I would think right. so. <laughs> Was that a yes or no? I the answer think is, so. No, Jenny? the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The answer is yes, but yes. any true researcher... Not to buy a new house. I, you know, if that's what they want to do, I'm assuming they can do it, but I'm assuming that any 
researcher worth his salt would take that money and invest it into research. That's just my thoughts because that's, that's who these people are, right? That's what I would do. But and if you needed a house, then buy a, buy a modest <laughs> little house, you know. But I, I would say, you know, a lot of these people are so giving. It's like they would give you the shirt off their back in order to find a cure for Alzheimer's because sure. a lot of them would, would appreciate the fame and the recognition or winning the Nobel Peace Prize more than dirty money. Not cool. that money is dirty, but uh, am I right? Yeah, but it's well, a great it's a great motivator. I agree with it's, you. It's a great motivator. It's also it's special. The prize is special because, for example, the the Nobel Prize is a prize for past work. It's really for one uh, a set of discoveries that a, a scientist or a researcher made in their past in the lifetime. Mm -hmm. The Oscar Fisher Prize is more for forward, outside-the-box thinking. And anybody can apply. You don't have to be a researcher. And, and the reason why wow. Dr. Trushar came up with this idea is because sometimes when, when you're working on a problem and you're maybe looking at it in sort of this narrow way, you might mm -hmm. be kind of in your box and not seeing the big picture. And so he, he wanted to incentivize and motivate this sort of, you know, think big and sort of look at everything, take a systems approach. You know, um, maybe you know, because every, you know, people are working in their particular domains, they might be missing what else is going on. So it's, it's yeah. really truly special and unique, this, this Oscar Fisher Prize. I'm curious what the questionnaire asks. What is the what kind of answers are they looking for? You know, yeah. scientific answers, exploratory, you know, plain exploratory or very specific. Yeah, that so the details of the Oscar Fisher Prize are on our website. We are asking for a written explanation to, uh, through a comprehensive literature review. So there's many there's there's lots of research already that already happened, and uh, scientists have published their research. And the prize is focusing on looking, taking a step back and looking at all of the papers, and and then putting in some new thinking, kind of synthesize all of this information to come up with one, a single explanation for the cause of Alzheimer's disease, and maybe potential suggestions or recommendations for advancing treatment or finding a cure. So it's, it's, a, it's very general, the criteria, and we have a team of advisors helping to establish some of the criteria for, for choosing the winners. But at the same time, we don't want to put any restraints because we want to make sure it is as comprehensive as possible. And how long do you think it would take for them to figure out that somebody came up with a groundbreaking concept that uh, fills in the missing pieces of the puzzle, so to speak? Would it take, you know, uh, weeks or years to determine if their hypotheses or whatever they have actually works? I, so I think the first step is, that's a very good question, and I think the first step is 
going through all of the literature, there's literally thousands of papers. And it takes, we imagine it will take time for one to skim and read and synthesize com in a comprehensive manner the, all of these publications, which is why the, 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 pro, the contest is open for a, a year. And then once these winners are chosen and the explanation is, is synthesized, we're hoping to release these, these uh, the, you know, the, the, um, the winners, you know, the, uh, the submissions that have been had from the winners to the public, yeah, the findings. And then we can imagine it could still take additional time for scientists uh, to, based on those ideas, to design experiments and then to actually advance the treatments towards a cure. But we think that before you could work on a cure, you have to first have a, an, a comprehensive understanding of the problem. Yeah. Is there anyone who uh, would be disqualified from winning? Uh, relatives of <laughs> the organizer. I mean, uh, are you able to enter the contest yourself? I am, I am not able to enter the contest. No, because I'm I'm on the administration committee. So there are certainly there will it's be. It's a shame. You might have some great ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I I cannot apply, but a, a graduate <laughs> student or a scientist that works in my laboratory, they can apply mm -hmm. if they want to, because these are, these are personal monies. Does the five million go to one person, or is it broken up, up into several awards? Right. So uh, that's a great question. So four million is are are going to go to the prizes. Uh, there's one grand prize of two million dollars, so that's that's definitely a, enough money to buy a house. <laughs> there's, there's two second place prizes of five hundred thousand dollars each, and then there's four third place prizes of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars each. Okay. Very interesting. Well. Um, we're going to take a short break, and then when we get back, I want to just go into the basics. What is Alzheimer's disease? Because everybody thinks they know what it is, and uh, maybe they each know some of what it is, but to have someone as smart as you tell us what it is, I'm going to write that down so that I will always know <laughs> <laughs> the right answer to give someone. They say, well, what is Alzheimer's? So we'll be right back, and don't go away. <clears throat> One Arm, One Leg, 100 Words, Overcoming Unbelievable Hardships, is about Charlene, a stroke survivor. Back in 1996, Charlene was a healthy, normal, very active 52-year-old woman whose amazing talents resemble that of both a Martha Stewart and a Wonder Woman. But all that changed when she suffered a massive stroke that left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. Who am I? My name is David. I've had the privilege of being Charlene's husband since 1975. We had a wonderful fairy tale, storybook-like courtship that culminated in our marriage a year later. Charlene had just come out of a marriage where after 10 years, she received two black eyes and a broken nose by her former husband when he came home high on speed. 
Charlene believed in no second chances of any kind for abuse, so she left. Finding herself all alone in the world with her five and ten-year-old daughters Cynthia Lorraine and Deborah Lynn, she started raising them by herself for the next two years. Then fate brought us all together. After falling in love with Charlene, Cindy, and Debbie, our love then produced Rebecca Elizabeth. We had a wonderful, normal life for the next 20 years. But today, things are very different for everyone. How about the reaction of nine-time Grammy and Devil Award recipient, the godfather of contemporary gospel Christian music, Andre Crouch? Charlene just won't let the promises of God go, and she has not let her circumstances get in the way of her faith. She's not just a survivor, she's more than a conqueror, as the Bible states. You'll be encouraged by her testimony, regardless of what you're going through. Available everywhere. And we're back with our guest, Jenny Shea, and uh, it's Dr. Jenny Shea, and Adrian Gruberg, my lovely co-host, and I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show, caregiverdave.com. So, Doctor, what is the official definition of what Alzheimer's is and what it isn't? <laughs> the Alzheimer's disease, uh, I think we all agree it's a progressive disorder. It causes our nerve cells to slowly waste away or generate and die. And, uh, and there's, it's the most common cause of dementia and uh, which is we, what we notice in our loved ones, um, you know, there's a continuous decline in behavior and also social skills. And this eventually affects somebody, uh, a person's ability to function independently. And in some individuals, Alzheimer's disease can uh, occur quite early. In fact, um, in, there's a form of Alzheimer's disease that could occur even in our early 40s and into our 50s. So this is a, could be contributed by genetic changes that, that might be important. And so some of the early signs could be you know, memory loss or just um, some of these symptoms like forgetting some recent events or even conversations. I, and then as the d disease progresses, a person, a loved one with Alzheimer's disease, they might develop more severe memory impairment and even the ability to carry out everyday tasks. Wow. Yeah. And like you said, there's no cure for it as of yet, right? Mm -hmm. There, That's correct. So there's... Um, there's still no treatment that cures Alzheimer's or even uh, a treatment that alters the disease process. In the most latest, the advanced stages of the disease, you can have even complications from very severe uh, loss of brain function. Uh, some of these changes could be seizures, they could have malnutrition, increased infection, and many of these uh, complications can result in death. Wow. So is there any medication that can slow down the process? You hear about those. That You're right. I think we do hear about them a lot. Um, and um, I think it's still too soon to tell. 
whether any of these medications in, in terms of the large clinical studies will really truly slow down the progression of Alzheimer's disease. I think there were some large studies that suggest that some of these drugs that um, break up the, uh, the, these are proteins in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. Maybe um, uh, we've heard about them. So these proteins form um, kind of these large structures in the brain. Um, they're like in two flavors. Um, one of them <laughs> is called flax. And um, it's sort of the leftover parts of a bigger protein. So they kind of get broken down and they, you know, kind of stick together. And some scientists think they have a, a you know, bad effect on other brain cells. The other type of um, protein is called a tangle. And these um, are part of the brain's internal support system. And they kind of move nutrients all around the brain. So, so there were some clinical studies uh, of, of potential medicines that might disrupt these tangles or these, you know, clustered proteins. But it's still too soon to know if that is really going to slow down or stop the disease in its tracks. So I think we still need a lot of research. Mm -hmm. well, we always hear that the FDA is slow in approving experimental drugs and, and that most people uh, die before they can even uh, you know, try them because uh, they haven't been officially approved yet. So when, when someone has dementia or Alzheimer's, doctors are quick to try to prescribe some drugs. Are these drugs that are uh, experimental and that they're just you know, saying, well, you got nothing to lose. We don't know what what effect it'll have, but there have been some indications that it's positive in some areas. I mean, what's the thinking like cancer of cancer drugs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, is that is that a yeah. good analogy? Um, so I'm I'm most familiar with a situation that affects babies. It's a it's a genetic form of a muscular dystrophy. For, um, um, for babies that is uh, basically affects their breathing muscles and their ability to, to uh, walk, to crawl and to walk and to sit up, sit um, upright. And uh, this type of very severe muscular dystrophy, without this gene, the, the babies eventually, uh, they, they only live a few years and then um, all of them die. And so, um, in fact, there, there's been recent um, gene therapy approval for this type of genetic muscular dystrophy. And in those cases, my understanding is that the gene therapy was accelerated in its approval by the FDA. And, uh, and the, so, so, so first, the clinical trials happened much faster. The drugs became available much sooner. And um, so in those specific situations where there's life-threatening uh, and, and urgency getting to the clinic, getting accessibility to the drugs, time matters in terms of survival. That's what I, I know the most about. And for, for Alzheimer's disease, I don't know as much, and I haven't really heard anything similar to that. 
And unfor- yeah. unfortunately, I really think this is why we still really need more basic understanding of what causes these these brain cells to de- degenerate. And it, the degeneration could happen a lot sooner and earlier and than we even understand. Yeah. Um, you know, academia sometimes puts a value on, on the education of a disease or uh, in my case, I spoke at a um, uh, the National Pacific Gerontological Society, and uh, it was the first time that they ever had a caregiver uh, who was a caregiver and not someone who had a PhD in aging and caregiving and this and that. And many of them had said, "Wow, you're you're the first real live caregiver that we've ever yeah. heard from." It was very interesting, and I'm just wondering. Uh, have you personally had any experience with dementia of any of your relatives? You already uh, said that you thought that uh, it was in your genetic line. Mm, grandmother. Yeah, my grandmother had dementia, and um, she was, you know, in the beginning before she was uh, in in the nursing home and still living with us. So I'm Chinese, and in my family, she took care of me and my sister when we were babies. And so she always lived with us uh, through, through her entire life. And then after she um, started, uh, so the first thing that happened was she um, sort of became, she had um, moved, so basically imbalance. And I've heard this from other... How old were you at that time? I, I was already, you know, an adult and... Okay. working and living on my own but the, so it the seems like you would have you would have a personal interest in observing her and studying her because here's a real life case in front of you and not just a case study in a book right I, I, I think this is very personal for me and, and, mm-hmm. and for most people who are scientists that there's we we always know people that affect us on a personal level and that what is what inspires and motivates not only myself but my students in the lab and um, so for my grandmother she fell and then she was eventually in a nursing home and then my mother took care of her uh, before she was in the nursing home and also continued to um, be with her side at her side uh, while she was in the nursing home so this is a uh, yeah, and and same same similar to what I talked about with dementia, with Alzheimer's related dementia. My grandmother also slowly started losing her memory and um, forgetting, and essentially not really knowing where where she is. She she uh, thought she was back in her um, the house that I was born in in Taiwan. Yeah, the problem I- with. With, uh, from a caregiver point of view, and Adrian will agree with this, I'm sure, is that a lot of caregivers, you know, if somebody has cancer, that's one thing. If somebody has multiple sclerosis or muscular dystrophy, that's another thing. But with dementia, there's there's not really a rule book on how to cope because mm-hmm. each one is different. And, uh, you know, logic is usually our number one um Choice of weapons, so to speak, or tools to try to uh, know grandma. Uh, grandpa has died, you know, 35 years ago. Oh, no, I just saw him, you know. You can't always be logical with them because delusions are very commonplace. Um, is there any part of, 
of the study or the, or, uh, the Alzheimer's Association that concentrates on caregivers and how they must differently treat the, uh, the patient who has dementia or uh, uh, Alzheimer's because you can, you can really make things worse by trying to fix them or trying to win an argument or trying to explain to them that, uh, you know, you're delusional or whatever. That's a, that's a very important perspective, what you just talked about. And there, there are research studies, but there sh should be more research studies focusing on the caregiver's experience and, and how, how caregivers and their interaction with the patients, with their loved ones, how, how that can help slow down their, or, or right. even in a, in a sort of a therapeutic way, promote memory uh, retainment. Mm -hmm. There's there's yeah, certainly a lot of research on how environmental factors and social interaction is really good for neurogenesis in a in a young yeah. or even a healthy individual. And there and there should be more studies looking at the role of caregivers in that process. Yeah, mm -hmm. we had a uh, Hawaiian poet on the show one time. Uh, her name was Frances Kakugawa, and she. Uh, told her poems about the perspective of, of an Alzheimer's patient. And I remember one of them said, uh, oh, here comes the tester. They're going to always test me. Like, what did you eat today? And did so-and-so visit you today? And he says, I don't know, and I don't care. Quit testing me, you know. And then she was like, oh, here comes so-and-so. I like him. He tells stories to me, and he laughs with me, and he touches me. And, you know, that was just so eye-opening to me, the fact that uh, we're, we're just trying to talk at these patients or, mm -hmm. or fix them or trying to make them better with our brilliant logic and not realize that, they don't care about our logic. They just care about how you're making them feel. And most of the time, they're they're getting they're grading in, uh, themselves as a, with an F because they're doing awful. Well, these these um, like you mentioned, all of these uh, the brain is very it's it's sort of you know you have to there's there's ways to preserve the connections that are still there. So even though you know we we talked about these uh, th these sort of progressive um, degeneration with with some of the nerve cells, but there's still nerve cells that are that that have connections. So if we could strengthen what we have left and preserve them as long as possible, and at the same right. time um, boost those the you know the the function of the stem cells. Through whatever means, so so research has shown that diet and stress levels and sleep and exercise and s stimulation and learning, all of those things are really good for the. Yeah, because if you're if you're arguing with the patient, that can't be good for their recovery. It raises their stress level. It raises yes. their frustration, Absolutely. and maybe it throws them into a fit of depression where they can't be kill good. Themselves. Can't be good for the caregiver either. <laughs> In terms, <laughs> it puts them on that. the wrong road. <laughs> huh. Yes, it, yeah. it's a bad situation. 
I, I think in addition to the research for uh, dementia and Alzheimer's patients, there really has to be equal research to help the caregiver uh, interact because that's, that's an integral part of the patient's recovery or uh, lack of recovery is is the interactions that they have with them. And even in, in hospitals and nursing homes, some, some of the staff, because I've seen some people react with my mother in a nursing home, and it's like, my gosh, weren't they even trained? They're just impatient no. and and uh, and what have you. They weren't you, trained. You know? so, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, in my grandmother's nursing home, it's, it's it's a tough situation because in in my in my our case you know because of the nature of her of her insurance and all of those things it's um it's comp it's complicated of course yeah. how much how much services and care and and uh, we we decided on you know because she my sister and I, we are working, and um, my grandmother took care of us when we were babies uh, so that we, we decided, I have small children, and I was paying for daycare for my kids. <laughs> yeah. My sister and I decided we would use some of our funds, our budget, to help hire um, like, a, like a babysitter that would, that could, would spend, you know, eight hours a day and just talk to my grandmother, uh, like listen to the radio with her, um, you know. And a real even companion. If, even, yeah, even if she wasn't really responding all of the time, but just to have another person at her side. Because, unfortunately, because of my job and I live in Texas, my grandmother lived in Los Angeles, so it was difficult to be at her side all, all the time. And that's always a challenge. Did you say she's still alive? How's she doing? No, she, she, pass she passed away? away. Yeah, two years ago. Was that a quick process? I mean, tell us about how it's really how the, uh, the passing went. Yeah, it was. It's really interesting. So I think she suffered from something very common. She just lost motivation to eat, and mm -hmm. that, that's something I hear very common for dementia. It's um, yeah. malnutrition yeah. and. Uh, and but she hung on. In fact, I I was surprised how long she hung on for probably for months, like for at least two months, just drinking minimal amounts of water, not really eating. But uh, my my mom told me it was it was it's been you know she sensed something, and my sister and I both flew home to visit her, and then and she. I mean, there were there were just years where she didn't recognize and forgot who we really were, and um, but then it was suddenly she looked at me like she remembered who I was. I I mean, of course, it was just shocking. Just suddenly, she had this moment of alertness, and um, and then that night she passed away in her sleep. That that moment of clarity is not uncommon. You know, when that brief moment when all of a sudden everything comes into focus. And and I almost, a part of me wonders if when, because my sister and I, we, we went to the, you know, we went to, uh, you know, be with her, that maybe she was waiting for us mm. to uh, say goodbye or to have the chance to say goodbye. Who knows? But I, it just seemed Very coincidental. Possible. 
that 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 yeah. happened that same night. Now you're yeah. saying that before she was hospitalized with dementia, that she had was she diagnosed with Alzheimer's before the dementia? I mean, mm -hmm. I really, I, I guess what I want to know is, can you tell us what the difference is between Alzheimer's and dementia, and and how they work together? Yeah. So Alzheimer's is it's defined by having the the dementia, the symptom, but it's also it's based on a medical pathological finding. Like having those, for example, I mentioned those aggregated or clustered proteins. So pathologists will find evidence of like the plaques and the tangles, and then mm -hmm. that together with the dementia, it's it's sort of this medical definition of Alzheimer's disease. So we we never had my grandmother's brain examined mm -hmm. for pathological signs. So we don't have an official diagnosis, but that's what the you know the doctor suspected. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's common to not have an official diagnosis because as well you know what what purpose would it serve? Exactly, as a form of dementia and whatever. Well, listen, we're going to take another break, and when we get back, I'd like you to uh, talk about some of the things you two were talking about before the show when we were having our technical difficulties because it sounded like <laughs> an interesting conversation. <laughs> so we'll be right back. Don't go away. We are a community of caregivers that understands and supports you wherever you are in your journey. We are a place to connect with other caregivers, but more importantly, a place to get practical, actionable help. There are lots of ways for you to get support. First of all, you can download our welcome pack. This will get you started on your Thrive journey. Next, you can ask and get answers to your questions by posting them here in our private Facebook groups. You can also get live online support by attending one of our live weekly Connect webinars. You can get practical, actionable advice by listening to our weekly podcast. You can hear and read other stories about other caregivers' experiences. Plus, add your own in our weekly Share Your Story forum, posted every Tuesday in the Facebook group. You can access essential resources and download practical Thrive Solutions Packs, all of which are geared to help you thrive as a caregiver. You can get lifetime access to all of our resources. Again, we're here to support you and help you thrive and to enjoy your life as a caregiver. And remember, this is a place to get hope, not just cope. And we're back with Dr. Jenny Shea and Adrian Gruberg, and I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show. So what were you two guys talking about before the show? <laughs> and Adrian actually thought she was on the air. so <laughs> I thought I was on the air. Um, now, I was asking Jenny about... Uh, you know, I needed to know who she was and why she was here. I had none of that. And then we were talking about neurotrophins. And um, I, wa I wanted to know, you know, what might delay Alzheimer's or dementia and dementia. Uh, and then I was up to what foods uh 
might be eaten and and avoided and we had gotten to that point and not discussed that yet so so i think what we were also talking about is there is a lot of hope to yes store neurogenesis and this is a this is kind of a new idea that there's still these very plastic malleable cells in our brain and they continue to grow into these nerve cells that might make new connections and so if you uh, eat foods you like or do activities that make you happy that is really good for stimulating this neurogenesis so we were I'm, talking about stem cells yes stem cells in the brain. And um, there's a lot of exciting research in that area. There is a, we're working on the stem cells that are in, inside the brain and trying to figure out ways to trigger them and to make them more active, especially while uh, during aging or in Alzheimer's disease. We also have ways of growing the stem cells in a Petri dish. And these stem cells, we can see with our own eyes. So they're a little bit easier to study because they're outside the animal or outside the, the um, very, you know, we can manipulate them. And the very exciting things about these stem cells in a Petri dish is we are growing them to resemble the brain. We call them organoids. And they're really small, but they seem to look when you slice them open, they have parts of them that look like a little tiny brain. And they're, they're just this really interesting new model. They're three-dimensional, and we can keep them growing, and we can even use, um, we use stem cells that match the genetics of a patient. So this is a way, potentially, that we can learn about what caused their Alzheimer's disease and maybe find a way to eventually cure their Alzheimer's disease. Where do we get the stem cells from? The stem cells, normally the stem cells are only found in an in a embryo, but researchers have figured out a way to uh, use the factors, the genes that normally are found in the embryo, but you can put them into a like a skin cell, which is not a stem cell, but you can convert or change the skin cell so that it now adopts the properties of a of a embryonic stem cell. So it it's a new it's a it's a very new model, and it uh, is something that's widely um, studied by scientists around the world. Is there tissue typing involved with that? I mean, can stem cell? Well, I know stem cells have to have have a certain number of uh, things that match. So, can they be rejected, or, or, or is that part of it? Anti-rejection drugs and all of that being looked into. <laughs> yeah. So there, there, these stem cells, if they are like, if I wanted to make a, if you wanted your own stem cell line, it's, it's very possible. All you need to do is give me a little sample of your blood, or we could do a skin biopsy 
and I could put those genes into your blood or your skin cells, and within a few months, you could have your own stem cell line. And because so it, you can it, bank them, you can, I could bank them. Yeah. And because they're, they're matched to your body, you will not, in theory, reject them. Reject them. But if they were, let's say, from my brother, mm-hmm. who was a, a three-point match or happily a four-point match, um, would would there be that issue? We there There could theoretically, depending on how close, your brother and you are, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, these immune, immune system tests that right. we could do to demonstrate that and check for that. But the, the, the idea of putting in these types of stem cells for regrowing um, your brain cells, it has not been, it, there's still, it's still in the research phases. Mm-hmm. Okay? And the reason uh, scientists are very, very cautious is because they, since the stem cells grow so well, we don't want to put tumors in our brains. We want to be very careful because on the, on the one hand, the stem cells can uh, grow into a nerve cell, which stops, and that's what we want. But the stem right. cells decide to do something else and form a tumor. And so, and, and doctors and scientists, the, the number one thing is we don't want to do more harm than we mm-hmm. do. So you see how it's like a, it's a very fine balance about. Now, here's a, this is a question regarding cancer and stem cells. Um, could people bank their, their own stem cells for treatment of, of a cancer that might occur in the future? Yes, people can bank their stem cells for any type of treatment. For, make, like you said, making a cancer drug or a vaccine. or mm-hmm. any, and, and we call this personalized medicine because right. the is they should only work the best on your stem cells. Okay, thank you. <laughs> My brother had some neck, severe neck pain. I guess he had some degenerative discs. And so he got stem cell injections, which I don't know where they got them from, maybe from his own body, I guess. And it took about six months, but now his neck feels great. So what really happened there? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting topic. So the... <laughs> So that's a good question about what happened there. And I will say, as a scientist, we don't really know. <laughs> so the, the, uh, there's really two types of products that doctors use and the majority of doctors use. And I would say there's the really good doctors that are doing careful um, clinical trials in order to try to understand what their what their product is, okay? So the product could be a stem cell that is healing or could be producing a factor or it actually could also might be um, decreasing the inflammation that mm-hmm. happened. Um, so, so there's a lot of possibilities 
And there are very good doctors and scientists doing careful research with the right controls, which is also important to have patients that undergo the placebo treatment in order to compare, are the stem cells really doing something that you think they're doing compared to the placebo? And and there's something to be said about the placebo effect because the data also (laughs) says that the placebo does something very good as well. Why can't they figure out? A brain function? (laughs) Why can't they figure out what happens during the placebo effect and just give us placebos that apparently (laughs) work? (laughs) Because there's no side effects. I cannot (laughs) agree with you more. And in fact, there's very good research. Why placebos work? Uh, Research on that. Is there a research study done on that? There are research done on on the placebo effect. So what have they come up with? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's challenging to understand this placebo effect. And and it all probably comes back to the mind and the brain. Heal yourself, yes. Mm-hmm. We we can heal ourselves. You, you know, might not and, know it though. <laughs> and a lot of people would say, no, those are those are quacks. You can't heal yourself. Some doctors will actually say that, but yet to say that would would disavow the placebo effect. And and no intelligent doctor would do that because we know it's real, right? But I but I also want to. I love to take this opportunity, and I I think just highlight that. There are certain individuals that have, there's a whole entire industry based on bad data and and trying to, you know, use, you know, sort of piggyback onto the really good research, but claim, making very false claims about their product and, and, and claiming that it has an effect on their patients. And I feel, I feel, uh, you know, that's, I don't have all the answers on this, this what to do about that, but I think, I think telling the public and telling you know, people to be careful, to really ask questions about if, if they're, um, what, what are you, you know, what is this treatment? Is it FDA approved? What are the studies that went behind this? Uh, and, and really you know, taking time to, to um, do their due diligence. So even a bad product, uh, a fake product, a snake oil product, could have positive effects simply through the placebo effect process, right? It's possible that a snake oil product has the placebo effect, as long as it's not (laughs) doing more harm. And my understanding (laughs) of some of the snake oil products is that they're injecting dead cells that or or products that are degraded and maybe potentially toxic. And so we mm. were we were talking about in this is a is a different analogy but for example in Alzheimer's disease if you have toxic um, something toxic being released from these degenerating neurons it could actually cause the entire neighborhood to be bad. And so at the mm. same time the snake oil, if, if it causes, you know, kind of the neighborhood to be bad, we don't really know the long-term consequences of, of those types of treatments because we haven't done the studies. Mm-hmm. Has there been research into 
giving um, a clinical patient, a clinical study patient, a placebo, and then afterward telling them, aha, I gave you a sugar pill and you got better. By telling them that, do they then get worse? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. But there, yeah. but, um, I, I encourage all of everybody who's interested in this to look at clinicaltrials.gov because every single past and present clinical trial is listed there. And there should be results that are published, including results regarding a placebo effect. Um, one, I know this may not be your field, but one of the um, one of the bad things about aging is arthritis. It's it's a crippling disease. Is there any form of arthritis that goes on in the brain? That's a very good question. In fact, there is a t there are two major cell types in the brain, and we've a lot about the nerve cells. But there's another type of cell. It's like the cells that cause arthritis. So normally in healthy individuals, these other types of cells, we call them glial cells, they're like the glue. They, In fact, they probably make up about 50% of the brain. So they're abundant, abundantly found. So they're so important to provide support for the nerve cells. But during aging and also after uh, brain trauma, for example, like a stroke, this very important glue cell can form like an arthritic scar, which is really important in the beginning to promote healing, but then over time could become, cause more pain or dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So yes, to, to answer your question, there is like an arthritis of the brain. As soon as they can find a cause or a cure, I should say, for arthritis in my feet, I will be a happy camper because <laughs> I'm, starting, I'm starting to limp, and I don't like the, the feel of that. Oh. Well, Doctor, we, we thank you for coming on the show. Time has run out, and uh, it, time is the enemy, as they say. So how can we get a hold of you to learn more about what you do? Well, you can look at our website at UTSA. It's shaylab.org. And you can also find out about the Oscar Fisher Prize on our website called oscarfisherprize.edu. And Shay is spelled H-S as in Sam, I-E-H as in Harry. Yes. All right. And Adrian, uh, we can get a hold of you by Adrian. Adrian. The caregiverspace.org and all the social media links will be on the site. And, and I'm at caregiver that. And I'm at caregiverdave.com. And with that, I want to thank everybody for coming on the show. We will see you next time. Bye bye. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise. Like the birds will never sing